Jonathan Stokes, and I have the pleasure of introducing to you today a very special podcast, Forming a Community, Heartbreak and Triumph in Making Black Chicago. You all have the opportunity to listen to real people and their real stories about growing up in Chicago, specifically Black Chicago. First, I will introduce you to, to William Gregory Robinson as he tells you about how he grew up in Chicago. Okay, you ready? My name is William Gregory Robinson. I'm a lifelong resident of Chicago. In fact, I was born at 3110 Rhodes on the dining room table. My father was a career soldier, and uh, and uh, my mom was she was a homemaker. In fact, she won Homer Maker of the Year in 1954 or 55. Um, from there, we moved to 71st and um, Prairie, right down the street from um, Al Capone's house. From there, we moved to 80th and Wabash in Chatham, and we I went to school with my brother at Hookway at uh, 8101 uh, South LaSalle. We were there before the Dan Ryan was built. In fact, when they dug that hole out, I lost so many friends because they lost their homes. We, we was beaten up every day uh, coming from school. And we were hung by our uh, uh, pant leg on the fence upside down. And um, my girlfriend at the time, Gloria Thomas, she went and told my mother. And my mom came back with about six other teenagers. Uh, and she had her hair braided up in Indian braids. And my pops gunned down her uh, down her um, waist. And uh, she she got us down, uh, and um, that was the beginning of our nightmare. Uh, shortly after that, I think it was in '55, we went to Emmett Till's funeral. Funeral. We have to excuse me. I had a stroke and my voice. But we went to Emmett Till's funeral, and I. I saw him, my brother saw him, um, my, my mom saw her, and my father, and I was seeing all the people that were crying and being, you know, so I was wondering, you know, what, why are they crying? I walked to that casket, that boy's head was like that. He was horribly disfigured, and my my mom, sweetest woman in the world. My father passed out. He couldn't he couldn't take it, so my mom had to drive. 
and and when we're driving, driving, you know, she's crying, and she said something I never thought my mom would say. She said, "If I see any white people, I'm gonna run them over." I said, "Mom, I never, never." And she was a very spiritual lady. Um, the night we moved in Chatham, the very night we moved in Chatham, our house got firebombed, and there was a big crowd out front, you know, brothers get out of this neighborhood, they wouldn't say it, brothers. Um, my mom called my father. He worked. He was working at the post office at, at that time at Van Buren and Canal. And um, he said, "Okay, I'm on my way home." And she, he cat, he cat home, but he had about forty people, black people, with him, and they surrounded our house. They got on the roof. They in, got in the backyard, they sub, set out front, and short, they repelled those neighbors that were, that we were, that we, um, that were trying to kill us, basically, because they threw the, uh, the bomb through the front window where we're wa watching TV. But, um, you know, my mom, she went and got her, the guns. She gave me a gun. She gave my brother, my older brother, a gun. And we were in the window. My, my grandfather, who was part of the Tuskegee experiment, taught us how to shoot when we were about five years, five years old. So I, I was prepared. I was going to, hey, if mom shot somebody, I'm going to shoot them. Um, but these brothers, those brothers came out. My mom was cooking. Uh, and I was running, I mean, because I had to, uh, you know, I had to take uh, the, the meals out. And, of course, I had to sample each plate. <laughs> but, uh, you know. And we went, went to Hookway School. That's the same school Yvette S Stevens went to. Now, who is Yvette Stevens? They know her now as Shaka Khan. And I always told her, oh, you can't sing. Get out of here. Yes, I can. Yeah, I know you can. But look at her now. Um, uh, and um, that was um, that was a harrowing experience. From there, I when I was uh, my father was gone, so I was in uh, Tuskegee, Alabama, with my grandfather, and I was going to school there, and I wanted to be a, a Tuskegee Airman, and that woman, my teacher. White told me I wasn't smart enough. I should be a plumber or uh, or a janitor or a carpenter. No, I knew the the, the Tuskegee Airmen. In fact, Tom Join, Tom Joiner, uh, Lionel Richie, and the uh, cop, the guys uh, who were going to school. I I always told them, you can't sing. Look at them. They could sing. I just was being. 
I guess I was trying to be funny, but I recognized those guys were going places. And, um, but uh, when we were down there, I experienced coming down the street, and back in those days, you see a white guy tip your head, bow your head, step off the sidewalk. Yeah, yes, sir, boss. That made me so mad. That made me mad then. Um, when we went back, uh, when I was 13, I saw the same guy coming down the street, and we were, he was going, we were going uh, past me. Hey, boy, you 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 ain't going to get off the five now? I said, F you, hunky. You know, I'm from Chicago. We don't play that. But I also knew that we was leaving that night. <laughs> uh, got back to Chicago. Went to Hookway School. Had to fight white people all every day. And it's never, never fair. It's always 20 to two or something like that so my my aunt pearl bless her she said you know what what you should do is hide some brick bricks bottles and bats in the bushes so uh when you got to that bush then you have some ammo my mom taught my dog how to meet us at school and she was a toy shepherd, but she was. You didn't mess with Trixie, and that's what and that's what happened. So when the you know we ran slow, uh, so they could catch catch up, and when we got to our spot, we let them have it. We let them have it, and then we took those baseball bats. And we wore it. We wore hands. We uh, expressed our extreme displeasure. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And um, but that still didn't stop them. So I begged my mom to give us some PF flyers. That was probably equivalent to uh, Nikes or Georgians of today. And it was all in our mind because we put those shoes on. We were so confident, we started running backwards and still outran them. <laughs> Just the mindset. So we, we, you know, and then my dog, we turned the corner and we saw Trixie. Oh, they were, they, they were, those were good days. Uh, after I graduated, I went to Hirsch High at 77th and uh, Ingleside, where I met um, uh, Sharon Stevens. Now she's a broadcaster uh, for CBS. I met um, Reggie Bigger, who is now a, a judge. I met uh, my my main man, uh, Eugene Palmer, a, re, a real estate tycoon. Ty um, my my boy, uh, like I said, Bad Standards. He was the person that played Batty Batty Boy on Howard Shuffle, and he became a famous uh, comedian out in California. Um, Many other of my classmates became lawyers, um, and consequently, I, I still 
um, I still know him. I, I got involved with Reverend Walter Jones of Fathers Who Care and uh, with uh, Danny Davis. And we advocate, you know, fathers stand up. Um, and and we, we, you know, because unfortunately my brothers are failing. They have lost their zest for battle because that's what, all right, Swabi, and that's is what we're in right now. Right now, we are in the struggle. I um, became associated with the Woodlawn Mental Clinic. Um, and um, I have um, always fought for black people, always, because in my opinion, I know we're the children one, but we just don't have that cohesiveness that we need. That's even apparent today. Now, I notice that black women, educated black women, are the, the, uh, the target. Um, these white women talking about reverse, ex, the extremin, uh, ex, re -race, uh, reverse racism, they're just trying to uh, replace our, 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 our women. Not gonna happen. You know, we are educated today, and um, I'm still in the, in the struggle. I'm a member of my next door neighbor, neighbor here around here. Um, I tell the young boys, you know, stop all that killing. You want to kill somebody? Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, go kill somebody. I'm a decorated Vietnam veteran. I've got the Silver Star in, uh, in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and um, I love this country. This country has its problems, but where am I going to? I'm, where am I going to go? I can't go. I'm not going. I'm not going back to Africa. They have their problems too. But this is my country. Our people built the White House. Our people saved um, this country from war or World War One, War War Two. I'm not sure about the Korean War, but Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq. They wouldn't have made it without black people, period. And we have lost our goal of uh, equal rights. Fortunately, young white people are waking up too. So, and the uh, Hispanics who used to think, and maybe some still do, that they were better than us until they start experiencing uh, uh, racism too. All right, now we have the words of Mr. Sterling Bowden, former Chicago Public Schools teacher at Albert Einstein Elementary, located in the Bronzeville neighborhood. 
The students that went to Albert Einstein Elementary were from the Madden Park homes, the Ida B. Wells, and the Darrell homes. Mr. Bolden will tell us about what was what it was like teaching in one of Chicago's toughest neighborhoods. There was something like 95 was like a 95, 96 were like big years because that's when uh, I think they, they started like the demolition of the Darrell homes and uh, there was like a gang war. Like, and Einstein was like right in the middle of two separate gang territories and yep. the mayor take over. So can you tell me about like, what did you at the time feel that, okay, this is the beginning of the end of this school because there's so much going on at, at one time. The, the two gangs were the Dural Homes and Madden Park. Mm -hmm. And they used to shoot across Cottage Grove. Mm -hmm. And Cottage Grove was like a hub. Um, it was a hub artery from downtown. And um, it was a security guard that got killed right across the street from Einstein. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and like I said, this was the crack the crack wars and all that stuff. They were fighting. Um, remember the movie New Jack City? Yeah. With yeah. Wesley yeah. Snipes? Yeah. That was a parody for what was really happening over in Madden Park. Okay? Mm -hmm. That was controlled by the gangs. And um, the mayor at the time, I think it was Jane Byrne, mm -hmm. but... The mayor at the time was, um, was it Jane Byrne or Daly? I'm not too sure. It may have been Daly. <laughs> but they got, they started, you know, getting involved because, quote unquote, Chicago was becoming notorious for drugs and the gangs and the killings that were going on. And this was prime real estate. So they started tearing systematically tearing the uh, the projects down dispersing the people within the communities and thinking that you know the the situation was going to go away but at one time it it blew up even more mm -hmm. you know yeah so yeah I have sort of a kind of unusual question. Like when you were at Einstein, can you tell me what, what brought you joy? Oh, the students. The students, um, you know, it wasn't their fault, you know, that they were in that environment. The students brought me joy because I could relate. I was somebody that I grew up in the, the system. I grew up in the Hickeys. I had a chance to go away to Iowa Westland. I experienced an all-white situation in which I was the minority at the time. Um, I didn't know how to read until I was a senior in high school. Um, I experienced the power of a teacher, you know, at Wendell Phillips. Uh, that was my alma mater. Uh, Miss Washington taught me how to read from scratch. Um, you know, so I could relate to many of the stories, making sure I had, when I went to Phillips, I would, I had perfect attendance for three and a half, three years. And that's, that's because, uh, only missed two days of high school, but that's because, um, 
while I was there eating, I knew I was going to get breakfast and lunch. And um, then I started playing football. Then I got involved. You're at school. Get involved. Do what you're supposed to do. I learned drafting. I knew geometry before I knew algebra. (laughs) (laughs) And um, people that really cared about me invested in me. So I wanted to give back in that regard to invest in a lot of the the students that, you know, they didn't really know. They didn't know that they were just in this circumstance. Um, I remember talking to a parent and roaches were just coming off of her while we were talking. I didn't make light of it like, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, you know, because I lived in a house with roaches. I knew what what that was all about. So that kind of thing never, never uh, fazed me. You know, these were my people. I wanted to do whatever I could. And what happened was I was just uh, just strongly involved with them. You know, that I wanted to make a difference because um, somebody gave me a chance. And I wanted to be able to give my students a chance. And there are some success stories that I have, and there are some that I still keep in touch with students that are incarcerated. Well, one in particular, he's uh, he did 20 years so far, 22 years, and he have 20 more to go. So I still talk to him. I still keep in touch with him because... He's my student. He's my kid. So the kids definitely brought the joy. What do you think could have been a, a, a or if you if you were in charge, what what would you have done differently as far as like public housing, Einstein, that's the whole area. What would you, what would you have done if you had the power? You said what now? If you had the power, like if you were the mayor and you were uh uh, running like you know public housing schools what would you have done differently to like maybe change what happened to the area well if I had the, the true power the actual power because see a lot of people were put in as puppet heads and figureheads just you know to be the face of the powers that be you know to control the masses like the boule and people that they put in place to govern the masses. Um, First, I would educate the people. The people, you know, education is power within itself, you know, because that's the one thing that nobody can take away from you. And you're experienced in that, you experience that, and you know that. Once you get an education and you apply that education, the knowledge that you have, in your hand, now you become more apt to create real change. Without that education, you are just an influence that would, you know, momentarily bring about a change. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, if there's somebody that's controlling the, the strings, you have to go with what they tell you if you want to keep your position. 
you know. However, if you're the one that that's really bringing about the real change, then what will happen is change will really occur in increments. It's not gonna get fixed overnight because it didn't get like this overnight. However, it will eventually start uh, getting better when the educated people demonstrate a commitment to make it better and then put some skin in the game, so to speak. But educating the people would be my first priority. The second priority is to have people that have the resources commit, commit to what you're doing. Those are your stakeholders, you know, and they need to, to know this didn't get like this overnight. We can't fix it overnight, but we have to take steps in order to improve our, you know, circumstances. And then finally, I would just say, use the people that you have, you know, that have the education, they learn from the system, instead of going outside to get resources to govern the people, have the people that were educated within the system begin to govern the masses to bring about real change. That's what I would have done, okay. you know? Because if you notice, once something started working, what do they do? They get rid of it, and they bring in a new set of people. Then a new set of people. Then a new set of people. And it's never going to get fixed that way because you're, you're looking on the outside to improve something that, you know, you need to build from the ground up and not piecemeal and patch the work, you know and thinking that it's going to get better. All right. Now we'll have the words of Miss Betty Ann Washington, a native of New York who moved to Chicago at a young age. She'll tell us about the trials and tribulations of growing up on Chicago's South Side. Well, I'm Betty Washington. Okay. I was born in New York City. Which and borough were you born in? Huh? Which borough were you born in? I was actually, well, we lived in Manhattan, but I was born in the Bronx in Fordham Hospital because something happened with my mom. She ended up in the shelter, and so she ended up having me right there. So, um... And then my mom and dad had a lot of children. They had 11 children. So when we moved, when we finally moved to Chicago, um, we lived in Stayway Garden, okay. which is 3739 uh, 37, South Federal. You see the uh, resemblance in addresses, 3739. Mm -hmm. So when I lived there, my first when we first moved there, they had just finished building it, and they had they had the field was a garden. It was really beautiful, and then they had a social center for the children, and they had a swimming pool outside. And um, 
But as the years grew, grew on, a lot of horrible things started happening. And um, people started getting shot by the pool. Um, people were getting hurt and raped and all those type of things in the in that building. Elevators was getting stuck. People were sticking the elevators. And uh, they had 17 floors. <coughs> they had 17 floors. But people started getting um, raped in the building. Um, stick, they would stick the elevator and do stuff to people in the elevator. And what was so beautiful, it just it just started getting worse and worse. What year would you say it like it started there? So I, we moved there in 19. Um, let's see. I think we moved there in like 1959, 57 or 59. I was about eight or nine years old when we moved there. And then. Um, the horrible stuff that started happening probably it probably started like in the sixties. Yeah, it had to be in the sixties because I graduated from high school in the seventies in nineteen seventy. So it was happening in the sixties. Oh, just a bunch, of, uh, a lot of killing, a lot of murder, a um, lot of stress. Because um, there was a lady that threw her baby, five-month-old baby, out of the window. Yeah, and so people were started being very, very stressed. And we went, we went to church all the time, and we we actually had. Uh, my dad and mom had a business right on 38th and State Street. They had a fish market right on that corner, and they had um, a grocery store right inside there. And then next door, we had a soul food small restaurant. <laughs> so the way my dad got our shoes and things, because we didn't really have that much money. What he did was he boarded with uh, a shoe store that was right in the middle of the block. Um, Oliver and I cannot think of his brother, but it was two brothers that owned a shoe shop. And they boarded with my dad. Boarded mean they traded food from with shoes. <laughs> so he gave them food and they gave us shoes. <laughs> That's how we got nice shoes. And then later on, so that was that was still in the '60s, and then in 1970, I graduated. But I, I went to I went to Dunbar. Dunbar vocational, yeah. Yo, who? My mother went to Dunbar. She did. Oh yeah, Dunbar High School. I was on the pom pom. I was a pom pom girl. <laughs> and um, so. It was, well, it still was a lot, it still felt a little safer than it does now, but um, like during that time, the way the elevators were during that time in that building, you could actually, if you got stuck on the elevator, you could actually push the, um, 
okay, the way they was made, it was this little thing on the inside you can just push open, a door on the inside. You push open, and then you pull that other part open and jump out the elevator. So we used to jump out in between floors. I would be so scared. And I was, so I was very scary, but because I couldn't stand being uh, closed up in a room, that's what, that's how, and I had like some brothers. Was, uh, three brothers that lived there at that time with us and so I learned a lot of stuff from them <laughs> and we jumped out the elevators and when I think about it I can't believe I was doing that <laughs> but anyway so it was um, I went to uh, Christmas Addicts High School grammar school that was right across from where we live like on the angle and then there was a church a Methodist church right across from my building so it was like right in the, um, how do you say it? It's like right in the midst of the projects. It was a church right there, Methodist Church. And we actually went to that church when we couldn't get to our church. So um, there was a big grocery store. Uh, Penny's grocery store was right on 39th and State. Real big store. And... Um, so that was the main grocery store that we went to, but um, there was a lot of abuse going on during that time. And, but a lot of fighting, just all of a sudden, a lot of fighting was going on. A lot of divorces. It seemed like well, I don't know what happened before then since I wasn't here, but it seemed like a lot of divorces started taking place like in the um, in the 70s. Yeah, and, but in our case, it was in the 60s. Yeah. So, um, just a lot of abuse. Men fighting women, women fighting men. <laughs> just a lot of children fighting um, gang. It was a lot of gangs. Ice Cream Cobras, Dell Vikings, and all those type of things. It was just a lot of gangs. And my brothers was in them. <laughs> and, um, yeah. So I don't know what else I'm supposed to be saying, but that's that's how it was over there in Stateway Garden. Oh, so did you, uh, did you stay in the area that you lived? Oh, no. I, oh, yeah. We, we actually... I went away to school in Morristown, Tennessee. I went to college down there. But when I came back, my mom and was still staying in the projects. So we moved to the south side, further south, into a house, because that was a project. We moved into a house on 118 in Lafayette. That's way far from Way from where I was. Very, very nice area. When we came there, it was um, basically whites. Maybe one other uh, African-American family that lived there. And all of a sudden, I want to say in like in 1970, probably 72. Yeah, probably like in 1972. Um, no more whites. Uh, 
Captain America's was living out there. The area was really, really nice. Now, my mom's house, it didn't look that good. It was, it was her house though. It's and it, yeah, <laughs> but it didn't, it didn't look so good. But um, and it had a lot of problems in the house, with the house. But she didn't know anything about it. You know, by then, that's when my mom and dad weren't together anymore. And um, it was so much stress. I'm gonna move back for a minute. It was so much stress in the, uh, I want to say the '60s. My daddy ended up um, being at the hospital, the um, Veterans Hospital in Hines, Hines Hospital. Mm -hmm. It's in Maywood. He was there for two whole years. He was so stressed out. And, um, yeah, it was, so he ended up losing the store and everything. And, Yeah, it was it was a lot going on. Then it's then a lot of girls, like even when I was in grammar school, a lot of girls start having babies at like okay, so it was one girl in my class, beautiful girl, that um, she was fourteen years old in the eighth grade. She had two children, two babies, and she was pregnant with another child. When we graduated, she was pregnant with another child. Stress. It's a lot of stress and stuff going on. Abuse. And, um, yeah, that used to really hurt me to see her with all of those children. And she was 14 years old. She had her first child at 12. Then she had one at 13. Then we graduated. She had, she was pregnant with one. 14 years old. I can't even imagine what that was like at 14. Um, I was more like a, a child that stayed home all the time. I was sheltered, pretty sheltered. But um, maybe if I hadn't have been sheltered, that could have happened to me. But other stuff has happened to me, rapes and stuff like that. Yeah, I always... Always in that building where we lived, 37, 39, it was just, it was, it was bad. When we first started, it was so nice. And then all of a sudden, everything just changed. It was unbelievable how it changed. Like, what do you think was, that caused that change? Was it the type of people who were moving in? Was it just oh like yeah, the, type of people? All these, I'm sorry, all these divorced families. Because I think. My opinion is everything starts at home, and with your mom and your dad, and a long time ago, um, it seemed like, because I was born during the time where when pe if people were on like public aid, during that time, they started... Um, I don't know exactly when it started, but I remember it happening. If your husband was there, they would, um, and you would get public aid, you couldn't let them know that your husband was there. And I think that's, that was, I think that was really bad because it took everything away from a home, not having 
your mom and your dad. And some people may not, if they never had, they might not know what that's like. But that was that was very painful, not having or having to sneak your husband out, sneak him in, get rid of his car, oh, just crazy. That's what type of, that's how I was uh, brought up during that time. And I think the problem started not with just, you know, some people think it's just with the, um, with the prejudice thing with, I'm sorry, I was distracted. No, I think some people just think it's just from being prejudiced from the past, from a long time ago. But and that have a lot to do with it too. With um, I mean, even though I strive not to be prejudiced against anybody no matter what race they are. But that's, it seemed like that's how it started, with race and men seeing their women raped by someone else and couldn't do anything about it. They had to stand there or sit there and watch it. And they couldn't defend themselves. Or women saying they men beat that was horrible um so i want i'm trying not to go you said in bronzeville so i'm trying not to go too far into something else but i think that that's it's, yeah so um now so we grew up with my dad when my mom and dad were actually married but I think because of everything that my dad saw, um, he didn't live in Bronzeville. I mean, before he came to Bronzeville, he was we were moving in different cities, and he was in the army. And I think some of that, like the army, kind of affected his mind. I think um, not only the army, but I think. Um, the things that he saw when he was growing up, because he was born in, he was born in South Carolina, my mom was born in North Carolina. So I think the stuff my dad saw, like, um, it was actually a white lady that he said used to get him apples and oranges. He said he used to get all the black people, oranges and apples. And the Ku Klux Klan came and found out she was doing that dragged the lady out the house and he said they hung her to her own apple tree and beat her to death I mean literally stood there and beat her to death beat her until she died and he said Betty Ann you could hear that woman screaming he was just saying for example from 22nd Street all the way to 118th Street he said that's what type of pain they put on her from trying to help black people. So I think because he knew all that and all those things happened, that that's why he ended up being the way he was. Very abusive. Um, scream, yell all the time, always stressed out. And um, 
At least that's how it was when we came to the project. He was so stressed out. So um, then when he went into the hospital for those two years, that just that took him away from the family. And then um, my mom had to get on public aid. <laughs> So when he came back, you had you can't let them know that he's there. It's just it's, I, I think it's that problem just arise with the family being split apart. Because to me, it's wise to have a mom and a dad there. That's that's my opinion. However. Because of the situation people were put in, it ended up being something different, you know. And so you can't judge people for what they do and how they act because we all came out a certain way because of our situation, you know. Well, now we'll have Mr. Ralph Bostick. Mr. Bostick is a native of Chicago's West Side and also a former member of the Illinois chapter of the Black Panther Party. He will tell us about his time growing up on the West Side as well as the great work he did with the Black Panther Party. Y'all from the West Side, y'all maybe you might want to hear another perspective about that. Because I know he'll run you crazy, tell you about it. <laughs> you know, his family and everything. So now, what do you want to know? Just tell me about yourself. Growing up on the West Side. I grew up in Lydell. You familiar with Lydell? Mm -hmm. I was born in Lydell. Lived on 1528 South Sawyer, 16th and Sawyer. That was my first residence. I went to Holland Elementary School, you know, when I started school. Oh uh, yeah, then I they better have, they better have, then we moved to uh to thirteen twenty seven South Independence. That's Independence Boulevard. Okay, and we had a house there. My family owned the house. It was a three flat, and then you know we lived on the second floor. And my my uncle and I lived on the first floor, and my brother, you know, I got a brother that's 20 years older than me. He was married, he lived on the third floor. And then uh, lived there for a few years. Then we moved to uh, 4348 West Monroe, Monroe and Cosby. And from there, I went to... Uh, I started going to Hess, Hess Elementary School. Herzl and Hess. I'm with Herzl, you know, to finish my elementary education. And then went to Hess, that was the upper grade center. Then, yeah. Then we moved from there to uh, Garfield. Uh, well, I mean, then we were in, we were, I was in Garfield then, and I, 
And then, you know, when high school started, you know, Austin was still white, you know, basically white. So they wanted to integrate Austin High School. So we was the first graduating school from Lond- from Garfield to go to Austin. That was another community. It was still basically white. We were just starting to move into Austin. Well, with Austin, I think they had 10,000 students. And the first class of blacks was, we were 700 and some of us. So needless to say, they had a riot. We got our ass kicked. <laughs> but it was quite an experience, you know. You know, we fought back. But, you know, we lost. <laughs> and then, then the next year, the second year of Austin, we got about a thousand more black students. So we were starting to get reinforcements. Get reinforcements. <laughs> reinforcements arrived. So we stopped getting beat up and started fighting back. I mean, we'd have a hell of a war. Sometimes they would break out at the school, and then sometimes in the community, people would come from Austin and invade our community with guns and clubs and sticks. You know, we would really battle. So we had to fight to survive. And that was my first experience with racism and all, all that go with that. Then, uh, then in uh, 1968, I joined the Black Panther Party. We were located 2850 West Madison. Mm-hmm. I mean 2350 Madison and Western. And uh, yeah, then we then we opened uh, we had a breakfast for children program where we fed hungry children in the, in the neighborhood before they went to school. Cause we want no no kids to go to school hungry. Cause how could they learn when they was where where their next meal was gonna come from? So we had the Breakfast for Children program. Fred Hampton was the chairman. Bobby Rush was the minister of defense, etc., etc. And uh, Billy Brooks, we called him Tay, he was the minister of education for the Illinois chapter of Black Panther Party. Fred was from Maywood. Bobby Rush was from Chicago. From 16th Street, you know. And from there we started to grow. Then we 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 had a need for health care in the black community. So we opened the uh, Spurgeon Jake Winters People's Medical Care Center. On 3850 West 16th Street. Ronald Doc Satchel was the Minister of Health. I was his assistant. And then, yeah, we grew from there. And then, uh, 
where Fred was assassinated, and Ronald Dodge Satchel, the Minister of Health, he was in that apartment. He was shot six times. And, uh, uh, and then uh, when he got out of the hospital, we sent him to China. He went to China to learn more about the, you know, the movement. Cause we was, we was into Shannon Mao, say Tom. Cause you know, he, you know, it was communism, but we weren't communist. We was, you know, socialist, you know. And, uh, but we had alliances with a lot of organizations, like the Young Lords from the North Side. And we formed coalitions, you know, like the coalitions, like the with the Indians, you know, different nationalities. Even we even had coalition with some white people. Oh. And then we built from there. We had the free medical care center on 16th, breakfast for children program, uh, bus in the prison program, where we bus parents to visit their loved ones in prison. Uh -huh. That was once a week we go out to Pontiac, Menard, visit various prisons, you know, and whatnot. You know, my memory is hard for me to remember all that. No, this is really, this is you, you do it good. Let's take your time. Okay. It's uh, emotional for me to talk about this. Uh, um, tell me, like, doing all this too, what, what really made you happy during this time? What really made you, like, really feel good? Because you were doing something for the people. Because you were doing something for the people in the community. And that was heartwarming. You know, it made you feel good. Mm -hmm. And you would, you know, make a contribution to society. And, but, you know, it kept us out of the gangbangers and stuff. Because on the west side, like the south side, they had the stones and the disciples. The west side, we had the vice lords and the uh, gangsters. I mean, the vice lords. And the uh, I forget the other game, the other game, but there was the two games on the West, major games, the Vice Lords and uh, the Four Kind of Hustlers, uh, you know, something else, yeah. And we had clashes with the games too, yeah. Because they tried to run us out off of 16th Street when we opened the clinic. We were right down the street from the Vice Lords headquarters. And they didn't like it at first. But then we, 
and we managed to get along with them. So they left us alone. Uh, one more thing. What do you? What, what hope do you have for Chicago going into the future? Huh? What kind of hope do you have for Chicago going into the future? We hope that uh, you know Chicago could reunite as one people and stop the bickering and the back and forth. You know, and we getting there because now, you know, it's more Latins and more blacks than whites. So they need to understand that, you know, we need to get along to survive, you know. Now we'll have a native of the West Side, Mr. Danson Floyd, who's a doctoral candidate at the University of Illinois at Chicago and the founder of 360 Nation, a nonprofit serving East Garfield Park in Chicago. He will tell us about what it means to be a true West Side resident. It's far? Yeah, we good. Uh, so where I grew up, I grew up here in West Side of Chicago, Austin area. Um, so based on my age, I think like the between eight and eighteen, that was the ninety. So like ninety to ninety to two thousand. So that was an interesting time, uh, especially during that time. Living on the west side, during that decade, because the Bulls was winning. So that's like a big part of life. And so like Solomon, and so like living out west, do the Bulls play out west? So that's a whole like vibe in itself. Uh, the church where I grew up in, it was right across from it used to be the Chicago Stadium. So the boys used to play right, right, right in the middle of the projects. That's just crazy when you think about it. You know what I'm saying? It was like right in the hood where they played. It ain't nothing like that now. But when they played, it was Rockwell Guards over here in Gordon. And uh, so being out West Life, I was a lifeguard. So I started life guard at like 16, well, really like 15. I altered my birth certificate and shit. But, um, and that was all the West Side pools Garfield Park, Columbus Park, Douglas Park, Argyle uh, Park. Uh, and then I went to Tab High School, which was, which is further northwest. Uh, but a lot of people from Austin went there because you was able to take the Austin bus. Solomon, stop! Hold on, bro. Thank you, man. You gotta take the Austin bus straight there. So, a lot of people went there. Uh, now Taft is like, shit, there probably ain't even 40 black people in the school. But when I was going there, it might've been like 40, half 40% black. So it's like a lot of black folk. Uh, you know, man, especially during that time, the 90s, the economy was good. So it was like, people had jobs, people had money. I had money, I think at like that age. Like God, I probably come home like $600 every two weeks. That's decent for 15, 16. That's, that's, ain't that crazy, Joe? Like, you know, you know, five hundred, five fifty, six hundred dollars every two weeks at fifteen, sixteen years old. 
Yeah, man. So it was like, I didn't have no children, no responsibilities, no shit like that. I was up. And then, let me think. I don't know, shit was just a little different. You know, uh, it's funny when I reflect back on shit, like the murder rate was higher then than it is now. Uh, you know, the 90s, it was like 800, 900, like that, like a thousand even one year. Um, I think that was like 94, 93, 94, right now. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? I, the, um, I don't know, you know, it was a lot more game banging in. Like, it, you know, it, oh, I ain't gonna say it was a lot more. It was just the way, you know, the way game banging was done in, it was more like structure to it. Uh, it was more prevalent in a way. I think now it's just more like, you know, it's, this is more like just individuals or like cliques more prevalent, but then it was more like whole nations prevalent. So that had a whole different energy. You know, they used to throw like goals and shit. So would it be like 500 niggas in like one big empty lot, like facing the East and shit like that. You know what I'm saying? Like you don't see no shit like that no more. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but you used to see that. Like, they'll throw goals and it'll be like, or they'll march sometime. Like, and not march, like, you know, but they'll just be walking through the hood, but it'll be like a thousand of them. Yeah. It's like, damn, like, you don't see that type of shit no more. Cause I'll never forget that. It was like a Halloween. And it must have been like, shit, man, like 96, 97, or some shit like that. It had to be around that time. And the foes, I think they was walking down the division. Man, it must have been a thousand of them, Joe. This shit was wild as hell. I ain't never seen them motherfuckers like this, you know what I'm saying? Just 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 walking. You know what I'm saying? Strong as hell. Like, damn, or like gang wars. They used to be more of a thing. Now it's like constant shooting, you know what I'm saying? But then it was like when it was a war. It was like this whole gang up against this whole gang and shit like that, but. And so it, the violence rate was higher, but it was more controlled to like who the killer was. Mm -hmm. Now it seems like it's a little more sporadic. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so that that was different. I mean, that's just something I think about that it's like. Well, I mean, you talked about like what the Bulls, like if the thing, thing changed from like when they built the United Center, did you see like some changes? I don't know, I gotta reflect on it. Well, yeah, you saw the neighborhood, like so that, I don't give a fuck what nobody say. And maybe because I'm young, or maybe because, not young, but like geographically. Well, no, I don't want to say, but the first experience I had of gentrification is when the United Center got built. Because I remember my father was working at CHA at that time, and he was working in the Hornet. And I remember when they were saying they was going to tear down the United Center, they were going to build this new thing. And I remember them. Motherfuckers was saying, my father was saying that he's like, oh, they finna change up that whole neighborhood now. Like, they just built, and I remember, I remember we was young. He's like, it ain't no way they built up, they gonna build up this thing and just still have it for like them niggas over there that's living in Rockwell and Henry Hornman and all that. That's like, that ain't gonna happen. He was like, they finna. And so, right when that happened, when the United Center did get built, up into that process, damn. That's crazy when I think about that shit, like, cause right now I'm doing this work around development. And my first experience of development is like when this United Center got built. Cause I remember during that time, like Ms. Mathis, the woman who stayed next door to the church, her house got like bought, the land got bought, cause it's a parking lot now. So like that land got bought clearly that her house was on. I remember that. And I remember like, uh, 
the other houses that was around there was gone or like got tore down uh, because of that land and like the stores that was there was no longer there because all that shit was getting turned into like parking lots. And then, uh, and then they started closing Henry Horn. I remember that because that was the my church was right in front, right behind, well, front behind where you want to say what is it, or where the Hornets was at. Mm-hmm. The Hornets. So yeah, they started closing that down. They started closing down Rockwell. Rockwell was until a little time later. But yeah, I remember all that, and then like the stuff around Madison, kind of like just all got turned into like a parking lot, Madison and Dayton. Cause that's what uh that's what uh uh United is on Madison and Damon. And my church is on Damon and Warren. Uh yeah, yeah. So that's that's the first experience, that's the first experience I had with like gentrification. I was assuming before that it might have been some shit like on the west side, like UIC and shit like that. I mean UIC is still doing it, but yeah, yeah, you know, the hood changed up when the, the United Center got built. And, did you did you see like a uh I know a lot of people I've interviewed so far have been from the South Side. So was there like, and like when I talk interview people from the South Side, they always have like this kind of like negative connotation of like people from out West. Did you did you feel that like growing up people have like this, like you, like you from the West Side, like oh my God. The thing with Chicago, man, or if you're from out West or South, you could down there go your whole life and not even go to the other part. You know what I'm saying? Like you could be from out West and never go outside. And so my first experience, the only experiences I had with the South Side through them times coming up was when I played basketball in high school and we would just have to go play schools on the South Side, like, you know what I'm saying, whether it's Harper or Cobble or like whatever these schools is, blah, 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 you know what I'm saying? And those was the only experiences uh, I had with South Side, the South Side at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if I was going off of that, like, during my high school years, that was the only time like my thoughts of Southside was just would have been uh, the niggas just be on some gang banging shit. You know what I'm saying? Because that's always what they was on. You know, uh, when we was when we would go there, they was automatically like on gang banging shit with us or whatever. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is I didn't even like. I think the thing about our West man is like. It's its own planet, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? It, it ain't gotta like engage with no, with nobody else or nothing else. Like, so I never knew Southsiders' thoughts of like Westsiders because mm-hmm. I didn't speak to no Southsiders. Mm-hmm. I ain't know no Southsiders, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so it wasn't until I went to like college mm-hmm. that I started hearing like this shit about like. West Siders. And that's because in college, all the black folks that was mainly there, they were from outside. Mm-hmm. So then my thinking of like South Siders was like, these motherfuckers just be on some hating shit. <laughs> because like when it was gangbanging, I was hating shit because as far as like I felt like I was concerned, like like you never hear West Siders talk about South Siders. It's like West Side be on this own shit. It be on this own thing. You know what I'm saying? And so it's like and that's the way it was. It's kind of like, you know, everybody else got common. You know what I'm saying? We got twisted. Hmm. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and and I think the reason why we say that is because, like, I don't know. I think, think of people like Twister, like Rap Side, Twister, Crucial Conflict, or like, 
Oh, you ever thinking about dancing? Like, I just feel like out west, they might have been doing this whole thing. So no, I never heard nothing mm-hmm. from nobody from our south. Like coming up, I never got that feeling. Mm-hmm. I remember. I mean, but it's it's funny now when I reflect on it. You know, when I get this analysis around like anti-blackness and shit, like I realize that really what what that always was, which is anti-blackness, like Southsiders and gay anti-blackness, uh, just basically like looking down on exactly what you come from, you know, and that's because the West Side is just like a younger community, you know, like Southside has been here since the early 1900s, that's the West Side, like in the 40s, you know what I'm saying? And so West Side just held on to more retentions are southern retentions and innately like African retention you know what I'm saying so we look down because it is it, it's rooted in calling like the west side down home it's like but down home to what to black like it was like yeah people on the west side you know like they chill their parents look after each other children I'm like that's Africa that's not African to me you know Finally, we will have Southside of Chicago native Miss Bonita McCall as she tells us about her life, her loves, and what it means to grow up on the South Side of Chicago. I hope you're inspired. All the way to its, I don't know what to call it, when it started going down. <laughs> because I moved in 1941 into Ida B. Wells when I was going on, I was five years old, going on six. And it wasn't completed. Our building was completed, but they were still building some, you know, the rest of them. Our family was one of the first 40 families to move into Ida B. Wells. Wow. One of the first things my parents did was to go to the library and get a book that told a little bit about Ida B. Wells, but my mother had studied a little bit about her. And uh, so we were educated about her work and how she just kept fighting until she was, until she died. Uh, she came here, of course, to escape being lynched herself because she raised so much um, stuff about uh, segregation and especially lynching mm-hmm. and the, the so-called reason for it behind it. Um, she just did a treatise on black men not paying white women any attention and they're not that stupid. Mm-hmm. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Um, and, and also that love doesn't have a color. She knew that. Mm-hmm. But um, Ida B. Wells was well uh, It was one of the, the most original kinds of projects in the United States. It was either the first project in the United States or the second. I think the first might have been in Memphis, Tennessee, someplace like that. But um, early on, we thought we were the first ones, the first uh, project. Then no project has ever been built like it where it was only two stories high, basically. And then they had some buildings um, the ones right at 39th Street were mainly two stories. Mm-hmm. And then the ones 
behind it at 38th Place and 38th Street all the way down to 37th had a combination of four-story buildings and two stories. And um, the two-story buildings had common walls for four apartments uh, on, on the second floor and two apartments on the main floor, on the, on the first floor. Usually those apartments were for elders on the first floor. And then families um, had two and three bedrooms and shared a common porch. We had four families that shared one long porch with a door in the middle, you know, go downstairs and go outside, which is how I learned to be brave. That was my first, I still remember being afraid to go open that door and be by myself in the hallway to go down the steps. My mother got tired of taking me down there, so she says, you gotta learn to do it by yourself. <laughs> and that's how I made my first friend. And uh, we had a community center, and that community center provided the kids with after-school studies and tutors. We had dance classes. Um, we had elocution classes. Uh, you know, how to uh, eat with the, this fork and that spoon and all that kind of stuff. We I, had I wish I had those because I still, I, I go to dentist and I'm like, uh, uh, which one? <laughs> you always start from the outside and come in, yeah. you know. So um, we had that. But the other thing was the uh, diversity of people and their backgrounds that lived in the projects mm -hmm. in the 40s when they first opened. Doctors, we had lawyers, we had teachers, we had welfare mothers, uh, single mothers, but mostly it was mothers and fathers, and the mothers stayed home, took care of the children, the fathers worked. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with that mindset. We didn't lock our doors, we didn't have to, nobody was stealing. It was, and everybody looked after everybody. If you mm -hmm. did something wrong, and I'm on 37th Street, by the time I got home, I had been chastised three times and my mother knew what happened by the time I got home I got with it. I mean you, you just you know it was a village. Okay. It was a true village. I was so proud to live in Ida B. Wells. I cannot tell you how proud I was of the victory gardens that we had where we grew flowers and vegetables. You know we would get permission to do that from the office. Our very first um, manager at Ida B. Wells was Oscar Brown Sr. His son Oscar Brown Jr. became a great folk singer and writer. Uh, and Oscar Brown Jr.'s son, the Oscar Brown III, we called him Bobo, uh, he became a wonderful, fabulous musician. But he died very young going to rescue somebody. He got killed on the outer drive um, on his uh, motorcycle. But his father was a wonderful manager, a kind person, and our rent was $27 a month. In 1941. $27. I think I spent more than that getting gas to come here. <laughs> <laughs> I can believe it. I would not be surprised at all. Um, my grandmother taught Bible school in the basement there in Ida B. Wells, and she was allowed to do that. She had one of the Victory Gardens, of course. And she kind of looked after us after my parents divorced. My mother got her first job. She just couldn't believe that she was getting a check, you know. And uh, 
That was during the days where she would never have put pants on. She didn't mind us. I got my first pair of jeans, you know, when I was about 12 or 13, so I could, you know, it was okay. But she was taught to always wear dresses. And when my grandmother died, she thought she'd try to wear a pair of pants. <laughs> that, that was interesting. My father was the second manager of a movie theater, the Michigan Theater at 55th and Michigan. And then he took over the Joy Theater on the west side, and he became kind of like uh, working with the police and gang control. Mm -hmm. He had no fear. He really helped a lot of young men get their minds on straight and to get out, keep out of jail. So he was quite a wonderful person. He went to Inglewood High School, as did my mother, as did I and my older brother. Uh, my younger sister went to CBS, but. Uh, my father ran track, and uh, I don't know where I put his uh, writing the, you know, in the paper back there in 1932. He won some track uh, events and became a pacer for Jesse Owens and Ralph Metcalf. Oh, so wow. I was very proud of my dad <laughs> and my mom, too. Um, she sold, she did hair at home, and she sold... Uh, her, her creative uh, bakery goods mm -hmm. to the University of Chicago students so that I could take piano lessons and my brother could take drum lessons and he ended up playing at Carnegie Hall which absolutely you know <laughs> thrilled her that's <laughs> him and his group there he wow. died in 1989 and yeah and I, it, it amazes me the money that they sent for that uh, documentary on the Muhammad Ali was more for four minutes of his music than he ever got Plain. in a night playing all <laughs> night long. <laughs> he lived in Europe for a while, and I remember when I first went to France to see him and his family uh, after he had moved there, and he looked at me, he said, this is a long way from 39th Street, isn't it? <laughs> I said, yes it is, yes it is. So, um, Okay, that that's that was that, and then there's another musician. He's from Ida B. Wells up here. That my brother drew that picture. My brother was also a painter, and that's an oil that he gave me on my 21st birthday. So you know how old it is. Uh, I am now 86, so I've had that for 60 some years. You're the same age as my grandmother. Is that right? Yeah. Well, well, she'll be 87 in about three weeks. Oh, bless her heart. I hope she's doing well. Yeah, she's, uh, That's actually, I was, I was supposed to, I'm going to call her after. Actually, if I'm not going to call her, I'm going to go visit her after. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, because I'm like, I'm like, no, no, I don't need to call. I need to see, we need to see each other. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. That's right. My son is in California. He came in July, and it was the first time I'd seen him since the pandemic, and oh my God, I was so happy. So very happy to see him. Now, when I married, I married a man who was in the music business. He was a producer and an A&R man for Chess Records, which is a landmark here mm -hmm. on Michigan Avenue. And uh, he became vice president before he left and took a job in New York, and we moved to New York. But when we lived here, we lived in Lake Meadows. Okay, so when, you, when did you move to Lake Meadows? Moved in Lake Meadows in 1963. Okay. Yeah. Well, what was, what was that like? like? By, the t by the time I left the project, the project had gang problems. People were... Well, that's a problem, my mom. Oh. 
I'll, I'll call it back. Okay. <laughs> the, there, were, there were gang problems and the diversity of people completely changed. Most of the people that were coming in by the time I got married were people that were on welfare and very, very low income. So um, when when did the so the uh, like the middle class and like the working class when did they, right. they just started moving out or yeah they they started moving on up and um, and they were always replaced by people who had a lot more children because when we moved in there three children was you know like a lot of kids for one family but then when I left eleven children in one family was not unheard of. You know, I mean, it was it was not super common, but it was not unheard of. Um, when we first got there, it, the maintenance was, I mean, they just kept everything pristine. Mm -hmm. When I left, I mean, you were cleaning pee in the hallway. So it was like a different mindset seemed to come down, and it was the beginning of the dumbing down, I believe, of black people or people of color and um, or just people period really if you think about it because we are right now I think very marginalized by all of the technology. Yeah. The technology is wonderful in one sense but if you think about it we're looking at a screen most of the day. Television, mm -hmm. computer, my, Cell my phone. <laughs> right. You can't, and, the, and the babies, they know nothing else. Yeah, that's so what happens is their imagination gets pushed back. I'm, I've, I've always been like, confounded by that, that I can see a baby, a baby doesn't, they don't, they don't know how to read, they don't even know the letters, right. but they know how to work the phone to, to show something that they want to see. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. It's amazing. Um, it's like watching the whole um, collective mind evolve in one way. But to me, from my travels, especially on a spiritual journey that I went on many, many years ago, 40 years ago, I went to India. And uh, because Malcolm X had been murdered and Malcolm, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. had been murdered, Fred Hampton had been murdered, and it, and it was just too much. Mm -hmm. I had been part of the whole civil rights movement actively, you know, trying to desegregate the beaches here in Chicago and marching with Martin Luther King Jr. when he first came here and choir from my church sang behind him when he, the first time he spoke here. And um, I was so hurt. My spirit was so hurt, and my, you know, and I, and I started questioning all my beliefs. And, uh, and I've never been a, a person who, I knew that people call God by many different names. I never felt like my religion was the only religion in the mm -hmm. world. You know, I was, I'm, I'm just, you know, open to all religions and all people. But knowing myself and learning who I really was, and I was educated in India, I had to go all the way over there to have a guru tell me, you need to tell your people who they are. They are not normal people and they're making themselves sick trying to be normal. You're super normal people. 
And I'm not, he says, I'm not appealing to your ego. He said, super normal is only healthier than the norm. You're supposed to be dead. They have no use for you anymore. And look how you thrived. And look how you have contributed to society. And look at all the inventions that you've given. He knew about Daniel Hale. He knew about Frederick Douglass. But these are things that I wasn't even taught in school. And he said, being a super normal person, he said, you're giving, you give your givers. And he said, and you're, it's a natural giving. He talked about jazz and how powerful. He said, do you know jazz absolutely uh, diminished hate to make it the pitiful thing? He said, it was just, it was impossible to be in a jazz uh, situation where music, that music was being played and not bring people together. And I thought, oh my God, it's so true, you know, because I'm in it, you know, up to my ears with my husband being in the music business and he was a jazz uh, a producer and uh, my brother being uh, a musician and a composer and an artist and me being a musician and, you know, my sister sing, being a singer and my, my parents doing everything they could to teach us about ourselves. My mother was the first person who told me that everybody was totally unique and that most people didn't know it. They were trying to be somebody else. And when I understood that and I knew that nobody had ever seen, that's another thing I learned in nobody's ever seen their own face. You can't accept a reflection. And a mirror is never 100% true. You can only, you can see my face and I can see yours, but our eyes look forward. There's no way we can take them out and actually look at our faces. Mm -hmm. So the face is a very important part of the human body in that we have focused so much attention on it and put all kinds of parameters around what beauty is, that we've lost our own consciousness that the beauty, we are not even these bodies. We are in these bodies, but we are spirit. We are not these bodies. Didn't know that until I levitated it and came out of my body in India. And I was like, whoa, okay. So this is what I look like and this is the way that it can happen. But um, I tell people all the time, I have no money, you know, per se, because every time I got my checks back from the IRS when I was working as a young person, I got on a plane and went to China and Africa and India and everywhere else I could, I could go. And I learned a lot. I'm not sorry about it at all, but I'm the richest woman in, that you'll ever meet because I know who I am, I know where I came from, and I'm very, very, very happy because somebody loves me. That's well. And I'm healthy. That's wealth. That's the wealth. So I decided, and this is what I do with all my neighbors and all my friends and all my strangers that I meet. I went and got the shots, but I only did it because my son I knew would not come here if his mother didn't get those shots. Because I've always been against vaccines since I learned a lot about what happened to us and how we were. Uh, targeted and misused and abused with even the AMA's 
you know, uh, complicity, you know, by, by, by put, giving us uh, men, um, syphilis and young women going into doctors for DNC or some other kind of little uh, simple procedure and they would fix them so they couldn't have sterilized them so they couldn't have children. And I just didn't trust vaccines. I've never had a flu shot or anything like that. But this particular disease, if it does really exist, I don't know that it does. I don't believe everything I hear and nothing, you know, really nothing that I hear. I just have to wait and see. Um, but I had decided before this pandemic that my whole focus from now on until I leave this planet is love. They say it's the most important thing on earth and it's the, given the least bit of attention. It isn't taught in schools. It isn't, I mean, except for your, your familial, if you have a good familial background and, and relationships, it's not even discussed. I mean, it's conditional. And that's not love. Love is unconditional. So I said to myself, okay, I can love everybody, but I don't have to like everybody. <laughs> and that's when, if you read my book, if you ever get my book, I've got a, a, something called a superconscious prayer in there. And in that prayer, I pray for the Ku Klux Klan members and the Ku Klux Klan men and women. I pray for the so-called Illuminati. I pray for the murderers, the gangbangers. I pray for the skinheads and the Nazis. And I ask God to take them closer to his bosom and engulf their lives with his warriors of love and to send them a healing in their sleep and create an itch that they must scratch or go completely mad from unexpressed joy. <laughs> That's my prayer. And then I have uh, a daily thing that uh, it was a vision that came to me of what Earth is going to be. That's where we're going. We haven't arrived there yet, but we're on our way. And I will never, ever, ever. Well, now, the first time I read this in public, a lady came, a little white lady came up to me. She said, you, you drank all the Kool-Aid, didn't you? <laughs> But it goes like this. Since you're recording, I'm going to do it. Okay. <laughs> Love is, truth prevails, justice is alive and moved beyond manipulation. All wars that kill have lost their meaning and their thrust. Their weapons become powerless. Their weapons misfire and fail all intentions. Hate has lost its strength. Its stranglehold on humanity becomes a weak and pitiful thing. Violence has lost its strength too and finds no work available. Let all governments everywhere yield to the people for the people's benefit first and foremost. For what are governments but people? Let the citizens be aware of their power and not misuse it. The earth is healing right now. The awakened universal consciousness rings in harmony with us surrounding all naysayers, doubters, and other usurpers in a circle of extreme light. Their energies are quickly sent out of earth 
to a safe harbor to be nourished back to health. Because love is, truth prevails, justice is alive and moves beyond manipulation. Power to all people who practice being human. They increase in love, compassion, numbers, superconsciousness, powers of forgiveness, spirit, energy, laughter, heart, and more. They attain, retain, and sustain radiant health and abundance according to God's riches and glory. For love itself reigns supreme. God is love. Love is life's oldest vibrating energy. And so it is this day in this apartment with me and Brandon having this conversation <laughs> on planet Earth, located on a blue island in the cosmic sea of the Milky Way galaxy. Thank you for listening to my podcast on Black Chicago. You can catch this podcast on Podbean, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Please remember to let all your friends know to give it a listen. Thank you. Have a great day.